Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the Oceaneo Seychelles Show. The show where we explore the explorable, experience experience, think about our thoughts, talk about that which is beyond words, and compare our maps of existence. I am your host, Oceaneo Seychelles. Today's topic is the hero's journey, or monomyth as it's also called, and how we can use it to become the main character of our own life. As usual, I shall talk about my own thoughts on the subject, share some of my own experiences, and uh, how I use the hero's journey as a map and tool for self-development. The hero's journey, or the monomyth, is an idea that comes from comparative mythology. It is a story structure that has been found in most mythology and storytelling from across the world. Even cultures that did not have any contact with each other seem to tell stories using a similar structure. A sort of archetypal underlying story of human development. In my experience, when different cultures have developed similar concepts in completely separate parts of the world, these concepts are worth looking into, especially if they have stood the test of time. Because that means these concepts resonate with our human experience at some level. And this one resonates with us so well that today almost every single good Hollywood movie follows this singular structure. The idea of the hero's journey, or monomyth, comes from American professor in comparative mythology, Joseph Campbell. Campbell spent many years studying stories and mythology. He noticed this archetypal structure that seemed to exist in a lot of mythology and stories from different parts of the world and from different time periods. If you're interested in Campbell's work on the topic, I highly suggest reading Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Also, he has a series of interviews called The Power of Myth, and they are currently available on YouTube. And if you're interested in mythology and comparative mythology, that is a great resource, and I highly recommend it. This concept of the hero's journey has been very important for my own self-development. I started this journey into philosophy and spirituality because I had an aspiration to become some kind of storyteller. And so I thought that if I knew the underlying workings of the mind, spirit, and the symbols that we resonate with, then I could tell better stories. I still view storytelling as an important part of my personality, but the interest has shifted more from using these systems to the systems themselves and the personal development that they offer. Even though the hero's journey is commonly just used as a storytelling device, it can also be a map to becoming the hero in the story of our own life. And so I welcome you, hero-to-be, to this journey that we are now on together. This episode I dedicate to you. Yes, you. You know who you are. And if you doubt that I specifically mean you, then I mean you even more. Let's begin. The journey itself is often depicted in the image of a circle with a horizontal line going through it. Above the horizontal line is the ordinary or mundane world. It represents the conscious, the known, 
and your sphere of comfort. While the bottom half is called the special world, which represents the unconscious and the unknown, moving into where one is not comfortable. At least not yet comfortable, not yet known, and not yet made conscious. And making these comfortable, known, and conscious is a feat difficult enough to be considered heroic. There's also a line going vertically. To the right of the line is the descent into the darkness, or special world. And the left side is the ascent. Different philosophies and versions of the hero's journey divide this journey into different amounts of further steps. I have decided to go with a 12-part version of the system. Pretty close to Campbell's version, but with many other influences from other versions of this monomyth. Part 1. The Ordinary World Introduction to the main character slash the hero on manifest. This is your regular old boring life, where things are routine, mundane, and the same thing happens over and over again. The hero is not yet manifest, but feels stuck, like life goes nowhere. Or perhaps there's something that the character wants, but cannot currently attain. There is a problem to be solved, but nothing to be done about it. Or perhaps there's something the hero to be wants, but is too stuck in his everyday normality to go and get. Perhaps it's the start of a personal project, to go on an adventure. Maybe it's something more material. Perhaps it's a journey of recovery. There is a feeling of not-enoughness in the everyday normality. And you want to seek the enoughness, or at least the moreness, but nothing happens because you aren't doing anything about it. For me, my journey inwards came for, as many others, from a place of poor mental health. I was overworked for the second time around. I felt like all of my prospects for my hopes and dreams had all disappeared. I wasn't very happy in my relationship. I had lost my Christian faith. I consumed copious amounts of alcohol. And my hubris, need for attention and ambition, they were out of hand. I thought that that was all there is to life. And I didn't have the hope that there even could be something better. I had done everything that I felt society needed me to do or wanted me to do. But the most positive feeling that I had was the constant hope that I would die that day or someday soon. I didn't care enough to do it myself, but I had this constant and loud longing for the end of my life, and therefore the end of everything that was me, because everything that was me was in misery. Part 2. The Call to Adventure then something happens. There's a push towards whatever heroic adventure lies before you, the hero to be. Maybe the feeling of stagnation just boils over and you have to do something about it. Maybe you get an opportunity, perhaps some money you weren't expecting. There is this call for adventure. But with the call also comes the refusal of the call. 
maybe the worry of what might lurk in the unknown. Uh, maybe you feel like you have obligations in the ordinary world. Perhaps disapproval from family or friends. But trust me when I say the call to adventure will only call for you louder and louder. And if you don't go, you will end up bitter. Wishing many years from now that you took that chance. For even if it might be scary, there are life lessons worth getting out there. Here I would also like to point that the refusal of the call is perhaps not a necessity, but is a sort of a boost for the hero. When overcoming the refusal, you know exactly why you are going on this journey. The refusal of the call is also what keeps you from being all wishy-washy about the whole thing. Also, a person likely to be hungry for adventure will be likely to take any opportunity presented to him or her. The refusal of the call acts sort of like a filter on whether the journey might be for you or not. If the call is not great enough to break the refusal, then it might just not be the call for you. But if life is stagnant, my advice will always be to go and find an adventure to go on. And to continue on my own journey, I had realized I needed to change something in my life. Even though I didn't know what, and I didn't know how to, and I certainly didn't have the energy to do anything about the situation myself. But there was something about stories. The way they seemed to hold meaning, and the way they enchanted us. I had this background in theater, but I didn't quite identify as an actor. More as a storyteller. I tried to write a few stories, most of them quite shitty. I was mostly copying what I liked at the time. So not only was I a shitty storyteller, which was the biggest thing I identified as, but I also felt like an imposter at the thing I tried to do or be. And so most of my writings became nothing more than started pro projects. I was holding myself back. But one important thing happened around that time. A friend of mine offered me to teach me meditation. Which brings me to the next part of the hero's journey. Part 3. Meeting the Mentor And so there's a push forward. Often there's a meeting with a mentor here. Like Obi-Wan to Luke Skywalker. But a mentor can take many forms. It might be a book, it might be a YouTube tutorial. It might be the people you interact with who has been on the destination you wish to go to. It might be this podcast. It might not necessarily be something that takes the role of the mentor but still something to push you forward. Something or someone from the other side that makes you take that step towards the other side. The mentor might be anything that makes you overcome the refusal. You have something to admire that has been on the journey that you now will take. And so I took my friend's offer to teach me, and I did this for two reasons. The first one, because I was overworked, couldn't sit still, and I felt like I always needed to do something productive. 
and I knew I needed to calm the fuck down. An activity where I could force myself to relax seemed like the best option at the time. The second reason was because I heard that in meditation one could enter into a state where one could experience the unconscious directly in a dreamlike or psychedelic type state. Which sounded really cool, and I thought that it would make me write better stories. Well, I never revealed those intentions to my friend at, at the time. And now I look back at how silly I was with those silly and selfish ambitions. But hey, I had something that held me on some type of path, and I had someone willing to teach it to me. I also found much help from YouTube videos and Spotify podcasts uh, that also acted as mentors for me on my journey. Part number four, facing the Guardian. The Guardian, in a Jungian sense, is a shadow character. A shadow is where everything that is you, but you don't accept, ends up. Uh, it's what's pushed away by the ego. It's a manifest, and so it's the manifestation of what holds you back from entering the special world. Usually, this is your fear. The purpose of the Guardian is to scare away those who are not yet ready to enter the special world. And in order to enter the special world, you must face the Guardian. Sometimes this might be an actual person or something that stands in your way. Like when you have shitty friends who aren't glad at your progress, but you still want to please them because they're your friends, but they're not actually your friends. Uh, but often, and also in that case, the one standing in your way of your journey is yourself. And when you blame someone else for not going on that journey, you're only projecting your own weakness onto that person. And overcoming the Guardian, just like overcoming the refusal of the call, becomes this extra push for you to enter the special world. Not only have you gotten to the point that what scares you doesn't hold you back, but it's actually become the fuel for your journey. In this sense, the Guardian is not always a setback, but becomes an ally or motivation for your crossing into the special world. And uh, there is a concept on some spiritual paths of the Dweller on the Threshold. And it's that kind of entity... That is in the place where your thoughts that um, say, Oh, you can't do that. Or that would be silly. Or what would other think? What, what would others think? Or you're not good enough for this journey ahead. And you don't deserve for what you're hoping to achieve. It, it'll use any bullshit excuse to make you feel less weak or any other negative feeling. Uh... So it's mostly a face-your-fears moment. And the worthy to enter the special world will overcome the Guardian. Because there will be greater challenges ahead. My first real hindrance on my journey was the mental programming that I had received from my Christian upbringing. The voice in my head that said that anything from any other religion, including meditation, was the work of demons trying to possess us. 
But the connection that I had with that faith was already ruined. And I had no will to live. But I had a willingness to learn. To try anything that would make me want to continue living. And this programming was in the way of me having a good life, or any life whatsoever. So I set out to learn anything I could about spirituality, philosophy, and the symbols from these practices. The Christian programming that was put there since childhood had become the catapult that flung me into the world of spirituality and philosophy. Part number five, crossing the threshold. And so you face the guardian and you cross the threshold. From the normal, ordinary world into the new, special world. The world that is for you previously unknown. And as you set foot in the unknown territory, you have the realization. You know nothing of this world that you have entered. You don't know how to navigate this world. You don't know how to act in this world. For you have not yet learned the rules of this new plane of existence. This marks the crossing from the ordinary world into the special world. And my first practices, they considered of uh, three things. First, meditation, which I did not do much of to start, but often enough. The second thing, learning. I learned about archetypical structures. Uh, The hero's journey and the chakra system was pretty much where I started. And third, to apply these archetypes to my everyday life, to define where I am on the journey and what I should work on. Part 6. The Road of Trials And so begins the roads of trials or challenges. This is the learning experience. This is where you learn to navigate in this special world. You face the difficulties that came with entering this special world. You make alliances or perhaps enemies. There's a lot of things for you to overcome. But for each thing you face and overcome, there is also growth. There is, this is where you learn the skills of the hero that you are becoming. One can compare this to moving into a new city or working a new job. There is this initial period of learning how to find things in a new city or the routines of a new job. Slowly you become more comfortable as you learn the skills required. This is also where you make new alliances. In a job setting it would be the co-workers you become friends with or finding a social group in a new city. Sometimes, when you embark on a new journey, you might find that you connect to this online community who are on the same journey, or just want to hear about yours. Learning something new is like learning a completely new language. You have no idea how things work, and you can't really do anything in the beginning, at least not on purpose. There is much to learn, and much to work out yourself. And no obvious place to start. But somewhere is good enough. Anywhere is good enough. As long as it's not where one started. I remember when some of these practices uh, I started to take uh, started to take effect. 
I compared myself to the driver of an invisible car on an invisible network of road, and uh, so I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to steer. Uh, actually, I didn't even know I was in a car. Everything was so confusing. Every assumption that I had previously made about life was to be abandoned. And the new narrative of how I viewed the world hasn't been built yet within me. And I was so confused, lost, and I didn't know anything. But it seemed better than what had been. So I continued on. A hero-to-be might be overwhelmed by the difficulties of life's challenges and wishes to return to a place where life did not have such challenges. However, you left on that journey because you had a problem at the place you were at, in the ordinary world. Going back won't fix that problem. In fact, the ordinary world and its rigidity was the cause of the problem. Part 7. Meeting the Goddess Sometimes this part comes during the next part, which is going to be, which is going into the abyss. However, it's often something that happens before, uh, but at a time where the hero doubts himself. Now we're entering this weird area of gendered archetypes, something that the modern identity politics seem to have a problem with. And so I have to enter this weird disclaimer mode, and to be super clear that these gender archetypes have little to do with actual gender, but are more like opposite forces that live within us. Uh, a male person can embody a female archetypical structure within them, as well as a female person can uh, have a male archetypical structure as their main thing. Uh, in Jungian psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, the anima is the archetypical female uh, that exists and is often repressed among those who consider themselves masculine, and the animus is the masculine archetype that also exists and is often repressed within those who consider themselves feminine. In some version of the feminine's hero's journey, the genders are switched at this meeting of the goddess, but I personally don't think that's necessary, because there's also another part where one meets the masculine. But I guess that could also depend on the relationship one has with the masculine uh, and feminine, uh, especially from their relationship with their mother and father figures. Of course, these inner gender gendered forces are shaped by most people that we have uh, had close that influenced us in good or bad ways. But the parental figures tend to be the strongest connection that we have to our own and the other gender. But to be honest, I'm sort of limited to my own experience as a male with a good relationship to his parents. Anyways, back on topic, the meeting with the goddess. And the meeting with the goddess can both be uh, positive and negative. Uh, oftentimes, it turns from really good to really bad. The goddess in this case is mostly often a motherly caretaker who lends the hero to be comfort, aid, and healing. 
Often, uh, the hero is presented with an item or a weapon to aid on the journey. Sometimes this is represented as an item like a sword. The sword represents the thing that cuts through illusion or ego. Often as a double-edged sword, as the hero-to-be will try to use against the monster, but it is turned against his ego self. And he faces great suffering, uh, but this, uh, as we will talk about uh, in the next part, is a blessing in disguise. The goddess can also turn into a temptress if the hero-to-be stays in comfort for too long. The temptress can give the hero-to-be gifts as well. It might even be something that the hero-to-be was looking for as he started his journey. But the gift from the temptress is never the real gift of the journey. But rather something that the hero-to-be would have to pay a price for later if accepted. Here, the hero-to-be needs to learn to accept help, but that he or she needs to break free from the comfort of the feminine, to stand on one, one's own two legs, even though one not, does not have to in the moment, to appreciate the motherly comforting figure, but also learn to become independent from such things. Just like an overprotective mother can become a tyrant, and smother her children when never letting them gain independence. And so the hero must break free from the need or bond with the comfort of the goddess, as he or she gains a healthy relationship with the feminine within, and therefore also the feminine without, instead of a dependence on the feminine without. Just like you uh, go to a doctor when you're sick, but you don't continue to go to the doctor after you've been healed. When I did my practices, there was this feminine force that, within me that needed to express herself. I have, as long as I remembered, found uh, female clothing absolutely beautiful. And I had this longing to be as beautiful as the women that I had spent my time with. And as I went on my journey, this inner voice just becomes so loud that I body dress. Uh, I experimented with makeup and wigs. I never felt like a woman, uh, or that I wanted to be one. But there was still something inside that needed to come out. But then, the less conflict I had with my feminine side, the less loud it became. Today, I feel like that side has been fully and positively integrated within me. And the need to express it physically has pretty much gone away. I do still occasionally dress up for either fun or ritual practice. Uh, and I do have a good relationship with my mother. However, I have struggled from gaining independence from her. Especially as her idea of how to live a proper life is not the same as mine. For example, she thinks that the dresses are an absolute abomination to my gender and the son that she had. And I do still have problems confronting that. However, I do live as I think I should. And I do not live according to the rules set by the one who nurtured me. So I guess that's one step along the way. But that part of the journey is still not complete.
At this part of my journey, I gained a tool that I would not be the same without. As I meditated, something happened in my brain and in my thoughts. Before this point, I didn't know it, but I had this condition called aphantasia, which means I couldn't form images in my head. My thoughts were only in words, but as I meditated, well, my, my hypothesis is that my brain took another neurological pathway, uh, and I could suddenly see images in my head. And since I didn't even know that one could think in images, because people are kind of shitty in sharing how their thoughts work, for me, that was a religious experience, where I was suddenly overwhelmed and completely amazed at these wonderful images that were suddenly displaying in my head. It took me years to realize that this was completely normal, and the previous experience that I had of thought wasn't normal. However, due to me thinking at first that these images were divine in origin, I took them very seriously, and I found that they actually were more healthy than my word thoughts, and these images would help me on my way to break down my ego, and so if there's ever a gift that I've been blessed by the goddess from somewhere, it's that. I also want to emphasize on that part that the uh, mother caretaker archetype is not the only feminine archetype, but it's a pretty big one, so that's why I focused on that part of femininity. Part 8. The Abyss, Death and Rebirth The road of challenges leads you into the Great Ordeal. The challenge that is so great that the you who you are now, and the you who entered into the special world, cannot defeat. But still, you must face this ordeal, for you might not know it at the moment. This is exactly what you came here to do, even if you're not ready. Circumstances has made it so you cannot avoid it any longer. And so you face the dragon in the innermost cave. And you lose. The kind of loss or defeat that you just simply don't get up from. Even though you might be still alive, barely, you could still as well be considered dead. Or you lost something or someone that mattered a lot to you. This might also take the form of an ego death, which is also what death in most uh, stories symbolize. In your death, you fall into the abyss, the great emptiness. You consider yourself lost, but as the old you dies, a new you emerges out from the abyss. The one that has faced death itself and returned. Face the flaws that led you to that moment, and rise like a phoenix from the ashes. An actual hero has arisen, even though he might not know it yet. This part is on the bottom of the circle that is a monomyth. Death representing the absolute bottom of the descent into the special world. The rebirth representing the start of the ascent from the special world. Death is the great mover of things. 
all of us must at some point face our mortality. And the closer to the actual day, the worse time we're gonna have with facing it. Much progress we have made as humans on this earth is due to our time being limited. If we want to do something, the time is now, because death might be waiting behind the next corner. Also, the encounter with death often shows us just how ridiculous we are. Shows us just exactly who we would be at that moment if we died at that specific moment. We find ourselves chasing useless things. Find that maybe I wasn't the person I thought or hoped to be. Perhaps by almost losing everything, we find those things that we do not wish to lose. The things that actually matter in life. And so we embrace the changes that death shows us. Focus our precious time on what matters to us. One might think that we become less as we let go and shed of those things in our life. But actually we become more as we focus our time and attention on the things that we actually find precious. And since I had longed for death for so long, I wasn't afraid of it. But I sure needed a better relationship with it. I was also getting overworked for the third time around and I knew that death came closer every time I had a brush with exhaustion. And so I rerouted my priorities, finally quit the job that required me to do more than I had to give, got a new job, and even though it paid a lot less and was a temporary position, gave me more fulfillment, it also gave me more time for rest and a lot more time for reading, and read I did. I didn't really know where to go, but I did something. And that something was what set me in the direction that would lead to the healthy relationship that I have to life today. It set me off to do the things I wanted to do in life, which I two years later completed, which in itself became like another death and another rebirth that, for example, led to this podcast. Just as an example of the cyclical nature, nature of these things. I have had a lot of contemplations upon death, especially potential afterlives. In the uh, Christian theological sense, uh, I try to make this plane as heavenly as possible. As I see, there's never a guarantee where you're going to end up after your death. Uh, but what you have and can influence right now is your life. And I understand that a promise of heaven after this life can help one get through the rough times. But the kingdom of heaven is within. And yes, one might have to thread through the hell to get there, but I think it should be reached for in this life. If not for yourself, but for the people that you wouldn't want to drag down into your personal hell. Hell is also something that I see as an ordeal, just like the road of trials. If one can find joy in even the darkest of places, then there is nothing that can get that person down. And if we look at reincarnation as a life after this one, which I find even more horrifying than the Christian hell, 
why would this life matter? And the answer to that is the idea of karma. You have been presented this life with a unique opportunity of a human life, a life capable of change. In the Hindu sense of limitless reincarnation, this is the chance to accumulate good karma and to live a better life next round. In the Buddhist sense, this is your opportunity to work on your karma and end the cycle of rebirths. And I know that is a Western bastardized uh, simplification of the two religions, but just imagine how many people there are that don't even attempt at reaching for something or improving themselves in the world they live in. For all you know, that might be you in the next life, never realizing that what you do now is actually in your hands. And you can do the work. And that's even considering that you're lucky enough to have a human or self-conscious life the next time around. Part 9. Transformation. The hero has gained insight from his trip to the abyss. Processing this, insight allows him to transform himself. It is as he has stepped upon a new platform of being. It's as if you don't try to be a hero anymore. Because there is no need to prove oneself anymore. Because you just are the hero. Not someone trying to be one. Or someone trying to do heroic acts. The lesson has been learned. The knowledge has become understanding. And now it's time to live and act according to the experience one has had. And yes, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And how well we live after what we have learned often goes in a sort of wave pattern. During some occasions, we are our best selves. But we're not going to be forever on top. But the more we set up these systems of how to act and implement the philosophies we have learned along the way, the more often we can peak rather than get stuck in the lows of our life waves. Part 10. Atonement Confronting the father figure. And so you face the dragon once more. But this time the dragon isn't just the dragon. It is everything that you came here to overcome. And it is also the atonement for the mistakes of the old you. And the dragon isn't as scary anymore. Because you aren't scared anymore. You've already been defeated. You've handled that before, and not only do you know you can handle it, but you know it'll make you stronger. But at the same time, behind that dragon is what you seek, and so you must win. Just like the goddess represented our relationship with the feminine, the dragon represents our relationship with the masculine. To defeat the dragon is to overcome the authority of the past. And just as the goddess represented a comforting mother figure on her positive side of the spectrum, and the temptress or helicopter parent on the negative side, so does the dragon represent the order that has been imposed on the hero by the father figure, or the whole of society. There is an archetypal reason to why uh, modern feminist movements view this aged authority as the 
patriarchy. It's because it has a male or masculine energy. And of course, order has its positive and its negative sides. Just like uh, order can be what puts things into order instead of chaos, uh, as well as it can be quite tyrannical. And the thing is that the older imposed authority will always be challenged by a new order from the new generation. For the problems that the new generation faces in the ordinary world are often caused by the order, especially tyrannical order, set by the previous generation. Or at least the imposing of that order in a tyrannical way. And the thing here is that order does have a function, makes things work predictably and efficiently in the face of chaos. But too much order, as in the case of tyranny, and we become repressed. Because uh, we all have these dual forces of order and chaos within us. And so the hero cannot only defeat the order that was repressing the ordinary world, but must replace it and thus becoming an adult, breaking free from the influence of one's parental figures. Uh, as one steps into their feminine side in the meaning of the goddess, one must also step into their masculine side when confronting the father figure. Into a place where these opposite forces are not in conflict, as they were before, but working in harmony to make the hero that stands on his own two legs, and symbolically one feminine leg and one masculine leg. Campbell often spoke about his concern that modern Western society had lost its touch with the ritualistic and uh, symbolic reality of the old world, and especially the coming into adulthood ritual work. He noted that in a lot of cultures, uh, the child would get to spend one last day as a child with his mother before being taken away by its father to complete an ordeal where the child would prove him or herself and then step into adulthood. Concept that I like in storytelling in this part is that whatever caused the refusal of the call is confronted at this point. For example, if it was fear keeping you back, then it is fear that is the dragon to defeat. It is what causes the mistakes of the past, and by overcoming whatever held you back, you have now reached atonement. I think it makes a very nice storytelling loop. For me, I've always had a good relationship with my father. Uh, he taught us very good lessons without imposing too much on our individuality. Uh, whenever asking him for help, uh, he would show us or tell us what to do. Uh, but then if I asked for something, he would let me do the thing so that I'd actually learned. So for me, the authority that I had issues with at this point in time uh, was in the workplace. 
Not in the cannot listen to authority kind of way, but rather that I was working my life away for whatever somebody else told me I should do, and then that person ended up with the profit in their pocket kind of way. When the opportunity arrived to start my own business, well, I was hesitant, and pretty much went through all of this hero's journey process. I had a mentor and everything. But that's not the sh story that I wish to share this time. Uh, but the whole process of not having someone to tell me what or how things needs to be done. Uh, that I had to be the one to set up my schedule for the day and I decided how and what needed to be done. I had become my own person of authority. And for that, for me... That was both the most teaching and freeing experience that I had on a physical and mental plane of my life. It was a time of very fast growth and maturation. Part 11. The Ultimate Boon slash The Master of Two Worlds The dragon is defeated, and with it comes the treasure the dragon was hoarding. The Ultimate Boon or the elixir. You have the cure to whatever problem drove you to leave the ordinary world. The lesson you have learned uh, are enough to change important things in the world where you have come from. You have mastered the skills to navigate and exist in the special world, but you also now know how to master the ordinary world in which you came from. And the problems you faced before your journey from before your transformation. This part represents crossing back from the special world into the ordinary world. And not only is it a return back, but the world which has been visited has also become part of the hero's experience of the ordinary world. And so not only has the hero returned, but the known world is now larger. For me, the journey itself had become a tool which I could use to go through great transformation. That is my elixir. I have gone through this process over and over again, becoming more familiar with every step along the way. Part 12. Return changed with the elixir. The elixir is a solution. It might be a lesson learned, something brought back from the special world that helps the hero, or those around him in the normal world. Returning to the normal, ordinary world is not an easy task. One thing that you will have to deal with is that you return to a place that have somewhat remained the same. But you have changed. However, in the eyes of those around you, you're still the same person as before you left for they have not participated in your journey. You have not grown before their eyes, and so you have not changed in their minds. Adjusting how to interact with a new you in the old environment can be very tough. But with time, there will also be an exchange of information that will adjust this view they have for you. Now, as the hero you have become. However, there is also the problem of the elixir being put to good use. The elixir might help people in the normal world, but will they accept it? 
For you, who have been to the special world and know the rules of the special world, know both the value and safe use of the elixir. You can put your trust to it. Because you have inexperience learned that trust. However, for the ordinary world where you came from, how will they earn the trust of this foreign substance or thought that you can give them? It's not an easy ta task to accomplish. But you, hero, you are the master of both worlds. As the hero, you act as an ideal for the less fortunate. You are the thing to be admired by those who have not yet gone on the journey. At first, you will not be accepted as such. But you will gain recognition by your peers with time. For eventually, they cannot look away from what you have become. Maybe not for everyone, but still some recognition as people become willing to take the elixir you share from your journey. Part 13. Yes, I know this was going to be a 12-part thing, but part 13 is actually the new part 1, which is the new normal, or the start of the second journey, which is higher on the spiral. The new world has become mundane, and it's time for another journey. Like when you've learned something new. Uh, the learning at the beginning takes a lot of the learner's time and energy. But once that thing has been learned, it takes no to little effort to do the thing. And so the learner has time and energy left over to learn something more or something new. Or find the thing that they gained wasn't really for them. Or that they've gained whatever they can gain from their old journey. Anyways, now it's time to repeat this process. The hero's journey might seem like a circular thing, but the thing is now that the starting point always moves. It's not as if you're starting over, but the multitude of circles creates a spiral upwards. Every new journey is like you've entered a new level on a mountain. And there is a top of the mountain, but that journey is just so long that you should just focus on the circle you're in at the moment, not to be overwhelmed by the mountain ahead. Now, the hero's journey is only one map for the experience of personal growth, and it can be quite useful for when life is stagnant. Uh, and you can analyze where in the journey you are, and therefore identify what you should do next. Uh, but it isn't the only map. It's also a good list of things to contemplate on your own personal development, with topics like, what is the problem I need to solve? What do I want? What's holding me back? What am I afraid of? What is my relationship to the masculine and or uh, feminine? Uh, what is my relationship I have to my peers, lovers, family, enemies? Contemplate death. It's not a step-by-step -step map to success. However, sometimes it helps us get through the hardships that we face, as we, if we see them as ordeals to overcome. And if we have the trust that if we get through them, then we will be better for it. 
Of course, there's always the possibility of failure, or that we get stuck on any of these parts. But without the possibility of failure, there is also no ultimate boon, for that is actually one of the key ingredients. I also use this structure of the monomyth for my ritual work, and storytelling is a very old type of magic. In many tribal cultures, it is the shaman who is responsible for telling the stories to the tribe, for that is part of his spiritual work. And if you're skeptical of the power of storytelling, just remember a time where a story had impacted you, or made you just feel something greatly. Or just look at children becoming invested in a world that's not physically real, but for them it's just as true as the world we are living in here. And that's not limited to children. But I think it's more obvious when looking at a child than ourselves. Because an untrained person is usually quite bad at observing themselves and the effect that these stories play out on our lives. And the making of this episode has been a very strange journey. With many synchronizations of the monomyth. With the real possibility of this podcast dying in the process. It pulled up many issues that I needed to deal with in order to write about them. And I think there's a huge want whenever writing and telling about a system like this one to stick to the established academic version that has been written about time and time again. Just trying to gain a little bit more accuracy in the journey. But with the hardship that I had to face in making this episode, I realized that what I had to share was not a complete or perfect system. But my experience of the realities of uh, this archetypal structure. And so, even if I had to stay relevant and not waste your time, I also had to become brutally honest. Especially with myself as I'm writing. And I'm not just talking about the type of honest where I just don't lie. Uh, Because that is not what I want to do for this podcast. Uh, I always try to not lie. But this time I really had to share my faults, failings, and the difficulties that I need still to face. Anyways, that is all I have for you this episode. Thank you for listening. I love you all as the beautiful beings you are. And see you next time on the Oshanayo Seychelles Show. Ami Tofu.